Hi, welcome to Wired Souls, where we discuss about the intersection between art and tech. My name is Miguel, musician, and also have a big passion for communication and tech. My colleague Joe, entrepreneur in the tech industry and ex-venture capitalist, and finally Fel, digital artist and mad hacker scientist. We're here to guide you through the ever-changing waves of how creators make amazing art through technology. Without further ado, let's get started. So welcome to the very first episode, guys. Wired Souls, here we are. So glad to be here. Thanks, Mig, for setting all this together and, and Phil for setting the space up. I'm super excited. Super pleasure. Excited. Welcome to the studio, guys. Thank you. Super happy to be here. Maybe to start, we could introduce ourselves. Maybe Joe, if you want to start. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Joe, co-founder and CEO of Lighthouse. Um, prior to starting the company, I actually uh, was a venture capitalist, so worked at a New York-based VC fund uh, that invested basically across the globe, uh, across the stack. So software companies, AI companies, um, consumer-facing companies. And I did that for a few years and uh, grew to become an entrepreneur in residence in that fund, meaning that uh, my job was just to think about business ideas uh, to launch, uh, as you guys know. And this is how Lighthouse kind of actually came to be. Uh, so Justine, our co-founder and myself, launched Lighthouse, which was, or still is actually, a search engine indexing uh, interactive media content. Uh, so basically a metaverse search engine. Now Lighthouse indexes 250,000 experiences in real time, you know, across more than 35 games, uh, which is great. And uh, this is where I met you, Mig. This is where I met you, Fel. And we're up uh, to our second product, which is now Bloom. Um, and we're going to talk you know, much more about it. Other than that, you know, been passionate about tech for a very long time. Actually went back into my notes when I used to work at White Star uh, and found back a 85 pages long report on AI Gosh. that I wrote back <laughs> then uh, with some super interesting like conclusions that I had. So I guess we can dive into that. <laughs> that was very... Yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, I love jujitsu, been doing jujitsu and judo forever. I'm a dad, I have two kids. That's a bit about me. Do you want to go next, Mick? Yeah, let's go. First thing about me is that um, I'm creative. Um, it's going to be very important in that conversation. Um, I started actually writing my own songs when I was uh, 12 years old. And uh, very that's funny because when I started writing my own song, I would like download um, songs from artists. And I had a software at the time that would remove the vocal of the oh, artist. Nice. Yeah. And I would Damn. basically put my own voice on their own <laughs> instrumental version. So you had no issues with IP rights since 12 years old. So you're good with everything happening in AI. No issues. With <laughs> I was taking all the credit. <laughs> okay. No, but that was really fun. But that was the beginning. You know, today there are like some AI tools that do that, which mm -hmm. is uh, very interesting. So that was the beginning. And, you know, I, at the time I knew that tech would be necessary. I understood very early on that tech would be necessary to express my message. Then growing up um, in my early 20s, I became very into interested in communication. Uh, so that's how I became a human resources uh, that I am <laughs> with you guys. It became more about interacting with people. I think it's all about stories. I really love listening to people's story, sharing my story, but also, you know, making other people uh, tell their story. And I just have a passion for that. Uh, and of course, tech is, is an amazing way to you know, get your mes message across a lot of, of people. I, I think it's so true. And people might not realize that. But as like an HR lead, you know, helping us just recruit people, you're telling the story of the company almost more often than I do as a CEO. And you need to sell people on the vision. I, I recall in the first days when you weren't there, uh, I had to do this job kind of recruiting people, selling the story. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's as hard to sell the story to a, pro a prospective employee than it is to sell it to an investor or a customer. 
So yeah, I do see that. What about you, Phil? <laughs> well, I'm Felix. I'm also a, a creative. I'm a digital artist. And I started as actually as a photographer back in, I think, uh, second or third uh, third grade. That's a secondary school here in, in Quebec. So I was uh, around 13 or 14 years old. So I got my first camera and then slowly made my way into, into Photoshop. And that's where I started doing like these uh, dreamscapes. So I also uh, like to steal images online. So I went on, on sites <laughs> like, a, like a, a, it's, a, it's Unsplash, it's Pixabay or, or Pexels. And, you know, just started bashing images together to create like these, uh, these new uh, dreamscape, uh, dreamscapes I called back then. And yeah, so from there, I actually transitioned slowly into, into 3D and uh, started to, to, to study actually at school, uh, 3D animation and, and digital design. But I never finished that degree. So uh, that's when I actually met, met you guys and started working in, in virtual world building stuff and metaverse. And, you know, that's kind of what I do now. You know, I'm just... Uh, I'm really focusing on on real time, uh, real time virtual world building for actually metaverse or just like an array of uh, of connected connected worlds on the on various platform that we all aggregate on, on Lighthouse. And yeah, that's pretty much about me. I'm also a, a bio, biohackers. I don't know if there's some <laughs> biohackers <laughs> out there yet. And uh, yeah, I also really like podcasts. So it was pretty high on high on my bucket list to actually I, participate in it. I think you're a hacker, like point uh, <laughs> no but it's true like you like to hack software together to automate solutions you do act the way you eat so yeah, this true. is your biohacking yeah. angle like you act this entire space yeah, for yeah. us to record like i think fail is like a hacker it might be the yeah. ultimate yeah. way to, to describe me <laughs> and what i do for a living yeah the I'm hacker a, officer the, the mad hacker scientist <laughs> officer of lighthouse <laughs> a quick note to thank our sponsor bloom for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to Prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but instead active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you're a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at letsbloom underscore art and help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations. To talk a, a bit about AI, I'm curious, when, when was the first time, how did you like first interact with AI? When was this and how did it go the first time? Maybe Joe, if you want to start. So I guess the first time I interacted with AI, I had no idea that I was kind of interacting with AI, obviously. Uh, I mean, I guess the first time really was when I started to use web browsers and then, you know, AI was used in their crawlers and how they were kind of indexing the web. So uh, I would say my first, like pretty much everyone, I guess, uh, first decade of interacting with AI was very much in the background, me not knowing that AI was existing whatsoever, just like being amazed by what you could do online. And then when I started to be more cognizant about AI uh, and its implication, I guess came when the 
web interfaces I started to interact with moved from being, you know, mostly me telling, you know, the engine what to do with the search, let's say online, towards be, being more fed recommendations. And I think this uh, kind of timed with mobile. Uh, what I mean by that is we, as we moved away from desktop, us giving instructions, we started to use mobile and, and the swiping feature came mm-hmm. to be like the main motion. And this means that you're not searching for content. Content is kind of being pushed to you. So I think this is where AI really started to take like a more meaningful place. Uh, it took a while. It took a few years for me to understand really that, yeah, like the algorithms were in the back. They were actually shaping, you know, most of the things I was seeing. Um, so this, this has been kind of the way, I guess, in which AI has kind of move, moved into my life. And then, you know, I had like a, I have a finance background. Uh, I've been investing since I'm like 16 and I'm also, we're also based in Montreal, which is kind of the hubs yeah. for AI. Um, and so I started to be interested in AI when I started to be interested in tech investing. Um, so when I was a little bit younger, obviously very superficial kind of understanding, but as I grew and as I started to work, you know, in investment banking for the first kind of, you know, five years of my life, we used to cover some of the local companies, some were AI companies. So I had to kind of grow more knowledgeable about this space. And obviously as I moved into VC, all this knowledge kind of became very handy uh, as we started, you know, I moved from investing with my own personal, you know, meaningless portfolio towards, you know, uh, a bigger portfolio, one of a VC fund. Um, And AI was very quickly kind of the, an area that I loved, uh, which is why I kind of drafted this report for the firm uh, on the topic. And now, you know, with Lighthouse, AI was kind of a core part of what we do. And, we're lucky enough to have, you know, Justine as a co-founder who has like a very strong AI background, obviously. Um, and yeah, that's been, but, but, uh, you know, even if it started a while ago, I am kind of mind blown and I didn't see any of, of it coming when it comes to the last two years in AI. It's crazy. Yeah. I thought it went fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What did you take on this? Like, I'm well, I, uh, I still remember the, yeah. my first encounter, I think with like AR, AI art was uh, actually the guy that introduced me to, to crypto art back in, I think it was December of 2020. It was a friend for, from school. So shout out to Underwish. It's, he's an amazing <laughs> digital artist. <laughs> and he started doing like these, uh, these really nice uh, Gans artwork, uh, like generating these uh, Renaissance painting. I think he actually minted the first uh, uh, AI uh, piece on, on foundation. So that's uh, that was a mind solo. I think wow. That was, yeah. That's, that's yeah. cool. And it's a really, really cool piece. So that was like a my first encounter with it, but uh, really, I, I didn't really think too much about it. It was only uh, until I think uh, GPT 3.5 and it was uh, everywhere on my Twitter feed. And I started really like uh, asking myself questions about that. And then I saw some mid journey stuff, some, some stable diffusion stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, from there, actually, I knew I couldn't like uh, ignore it, you know, because mm-hmm. I started seeing like these crazy images and it, it did affect me quite a lot. And I did want to like push further. So I think the first time I actually tried to, to prompt the, the AIs was actually, was a bit journey. And I did an experiment. I tried to build a mood board for a, a, a virtual spiritual garden I wanted to build. And I did a mood board on Pinterest and a mood board on mid journey. And it was actually a really fun experiment because, you know, when you're browsing to, to search for inspiration on Pinterest, each time you click, you like go up one level and it's kind of like a, some some roads that you take and it's like you need to take decisions and if you don't go back one level after like a few a few images you really get lost and you you really you're going places and you're trying to, mm-hmm. to like stay central to like your your piece that you, you want to create 
And with Midjourney, it was like a totally different experience because you actually need to think about the prompt. So in, in some ways, using Midjourney was was better. And I stayed like a, I stayed closer to my original ideas and what I wanted to include in that virtual world. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That was some that was my first time really trying it. I think that's super interesting because it does kind of tie back in a reverse manner to what I was saying, which was a, the way AI kind of came into my life was with recommendations. It actually removed me from deciding what I was going to see. And what you're saying is, well, now with generative AI, because I am the one giving the prompt, I'm actually controlling the direction in which I'm going. And you're conscious conscious of the process. The process process as a whole is kind of like a a decision taking process. Like each decision you take, you need to ask yourself if it's the the right move, if it feels right. And I think that does have a a big impact on the the final piece as a whole. That's so interesting, guys, because the first time I like interacted with AI, first of all, there was like Siri, remember guys? In the like early 2010s. Like I was funny and we all... We were we were having fun with Siri on the iPhone. And it was <laughs> so bad at the time. It got so much better. It was better. crazy bad. Yeah, it was crazy bad. I don't like, remember it. You don't? Yeah, yeah. no. Better like that. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Oh, because you're a bit younger. Yeah. But um, but then I remember like uh, 2020, I started a YouTube channel and I was like posting music, but also other things. And this is when like I I, I was conscious of the fact that you needed to understand AI to get your message you know, uh-huh. across. So I understood that the recommendation system of YouTube was working in a certain way. And I really had to understand the nitty gritty details of it to make sure that my message would, would, would get um, there, you know, over there. So, uh, and to the right people too. So it's, it's interesting to see how we all like, we, you know, the, the, the process of like understanding AI and how it works and how it's evolving also through times. It, it seems like right now we're living a time when we have so much more interaction with the, the platform when at the time it seems like it was a bit more subconscious. Yeah, very yeah. true. Any yeah. things you learned, you know, trying to understand how the YouTube algorithm worked mm-hmm. and, did it shape a little bit how you produced or oh presented content? So much, so much. Examples. Like, <laughs> for example, one very funny thing is that when you post a YouTube video, you need to put keywords, right, and yeah. the video. But if you put a lot of keywords about a lot of different things, you lose the algorithm. So the algorithm will never push your video. So in order to get really your message to the right people, you need to have something that makes sense and that fits with other people that make that type of videos. It's funny because it makes me think about my mom who's yeah. going to put like basically every single word she knows in hashtag mode. <laughs> so she would break the YouTube algorithm by herself. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. yeah. And also what's funny about AI, and we can come back to this, but the more people use it, the more it, you know, it becomes like, it, it grows, right? And it changes with time. So, you know, it's like... You, yeah, it learns. Yeah, it le- basically it learns. So you need to be smarter and smarter and you constantly need to learn how it works. And, you know, I got a bit lost in the sauce with YouTube. But, <laughs> but yeah, at the time, yeah. At some point I was like, okay, I think I get it. <laughs> but now I'm lost. <laughs> no, it's super interesting. Also, like a, maybe a few years back, it was like a, in the back end, very much in the back end. Like we didn't see anything or... We didn't know we were interacting with with AI, but right now, like uh, I use a Brave browser as my main browser, and there's actually the Brave AI baked in in the search. And you know, I I've always been a fan of uh, of googling stuff and like learning how to Google things properly to find my so answers. You, like you super- Google stuff on Brave. 
Yeah, I Google stuff on Brave. But <laughs> before that, I used like Safari and, and Google Chrome. But now that I use Brave AI or that, you know, I, I didn't toggle any settings. It just appeared in my, my browser. I, I, I know 100% now it's a lot faster to find my answers. Like I, if I ask a, a proper question, it's just going to give me the, the answer. And I usually uh, I'm good with only that, uh, that prompt. Can, can you tell us more about Brave AI? Uh, I don't know. It's just baked into Brave. Brave is just a, a super fast and secure way to, to browse a web with a lot of features uh, also for Web3 and IPFS. And privacy and, first. Yeah, privacy oh, first. Wow. And yeah, right now they just enabled the, the Brave AI inside the browser, which is uh, which has been a lot of, very useful to me. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. Actually, I think it's a very good transition to the topic of this podcast in general. Um yeah, maybe we could talk about like what is it that we wanna we wanna explore through this podcast in general. Just by the group that we have reassembled here, uh, I think we can discuss and explore some pretty a pretty wide range of topic when it comes to how technology is transforming the way humans create art, uh, and that's really kind of the core topic of this podcast. So. Every week, the goal for us is to discuss about a new tech, a new product, something new that came out. So we're going to read research papers. We're going to try these products. We're going to try MVPs. Uh, we're going to discuss with early users of this product. And every week, we're going to be discussing about something new and very cool that we think people should try. So that's the first piece. And then the second piece, which is even more exciting, is every week we're going to unveil or bring to the surface the work of artists that we think are doing amazing things with technology. Uh, and we have an amazing thing to discuss later today on this topic, but that's the goal, hel helping people discover new tech and discover amazing creators using the tech. Uh, and when you look at, you know, kind of our personal journeys, all of us, it's all been about I mean, more for you guys on the creativity front, but it's been about creativity. It's been about staying on the edge of technology and what's happening there. Um, it's a passion for all of us. So even if we're not researcher or rock stars, <laughs> I think we do have the curiosity that a lot of people have. And our goal is just to help people navigate kind of this rapidly evolving field. That is crazy how much, like, it's so fast. <laughs> it's so fast-paced. Ah, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. it's so I'm not even stressed about every week talking about a new tech. I yeah. mean, you could do that every day. <laughs> you have, like, a business to run. But no, it's, it's going to be easy. We, we'll be able, like, to pick and choose and try out stuff. It's going to be a great way for us to just stay on top, quite frankly, of everything going on. Um I'm I'm super excited about this pod and today is kind of a special episode yeah. because it's the first one so we wanted to ensure ourselves to the world uh, you know just get used to the mic and the entire setup as well um, so that's yeah. pretty much it and uh, that's how I see it I don't know if there's anything else you guys see in the podcast that you want to explore or if you think that's pretty much kind well of I think for me personally it's it's about like uh, figuring out the, these AIs you know like I, I can't help myself but just you know not freak out but it did, <laughs> you know, like at first it did felt like threatening. And I think the more you, you dive into it and you, you do your research and you do your due diligence, like you, you start to figure out that there's, there's a lot more to it. And I think as like a, an artist, it's, it's important, especially right now to, you know, feel reassured or just find, find out exactly how it's, uh, it's useful for us and how it can assist creativity and not just, you know, destroy it. I think there's a lot of opinions out there especially on YouTube, but on, on all platforms, uh, 
against AI and I just think it's it's just misunderstood right now. Yeah. So I think that's why I'm super excited to Sorry. to be here and just try to to figure this out. Yeah, that's so true. So the, the big trendy word right now is yeah, generative yeah. AI, yeah, right? Yeah. So, Gen AI. Yeah, Gen AI. So if we dive a bit into it, like um, what is it exactly? AI models as a whole, just like the broader category, they're all about predictions. Mm -hmm. So it's how you use an existing data set to create new data. Basically, it's how you use, you know, information that you know, has come in the past, stuff that you've indexed in, you know, indexed and tagged uh, in a specific way and how with that can you make good recommendations. And it can be a recommendation in a very broad sense. So it could be make a recommendation in the context of large language model about what the next world word should be in a sentence. And this is chat GPT, basically. Uh, it could be recommendations as to which ads should be served to you next. And that's when you scroll on your Instagram feed uh, in the context of Midjourney and uh, DALI and Stable Diffusion, it's recommendations as to, you know, what the next pixel, pixel should be in an image. And so it's all about predictions. This is when you think about AI, you think about data and it's how you can predict something. So that's the first kind of layer of the framework. When you think about you know, text to image model, for example, which are the ones uh, at Bloom, you know, we're kind of the most focused on. Uh, the way they work is kind of twofold. So first, there's some um, natural language processing, which is basically a way for a model to interpret uh, human language. Uh, and so this means basically that you're going to enter a text prompt and the model is going to read this text prompt and see which images are associated with each word. Uh, so you can think about a big data set that has images and words associated to them, which is called kind of a tagging. There's ways to, you know, lots of this work can be done by humans, but there's way for machines to do that tagging as well. Uh, so there are, you know, supervised learning, self-supervised learning. There are kind of many ways in which those models can actually learn and be trained on an existing data set. But when you think about mid-journey, the first kind of layer for the model is to interpret the text and then it's going to generate the image. Mm -hmm. When you think about all these models, uh, the way they actually go about generating the image has kind of evolved a lot over the last few years. And this is where the excitement is really coming from, is in the ways those models are structured. And the first kind of big breakthrough, which was actually the way in which DALI-1 was created, was with what we call GANs, which is uh, Generative Adversarial Networks. So the way they work is actually pretty cool. So you have a generator, and you have a discriminator. And it's really like an adversarial network, as you see in the world. So the way it works is the generator is going to create an image. And then the discriminator is going to say if the image looks real or not. So you can think about a model that's going to try to replicate this little statue. If it's good, it's good. But if it's not good, then the discriminator is going to say, you know, it's bad. This is not like a real image. And this back and forth process goes on and on and on until you reach, you know, what we could call, you know, Nash equilibrium, which is basically a state where the image is convincing enough for the discriminator to kind of accept it. So that's how this first type of models work. It created like a dual dynamic in which you have like this iterative process that's used to bring, you know, models to better results. There's a lot of ways in which GANs could not work. You know, one, one is called system collapse, which is basically the generator is not able to create um, a universe of images wide enough. And so it kind of runs in circles again and again towards the same image and nothing is satisfying for the discriminator. So that's, you know, one failure mode that those models could have. 
Uh, they can be criticized as well because they're not the most you know, energy efficient kind of models. But these were the first type of models that really started to create like amazing uh, images and some very promising results. Like this was the, over the last, let's say five years, the first kind of step change into the quality of stuff you used to see. This is actually how the first, you know, this is how DALI-1 was created, the first kind of generation of, of models. And now the models that are kind of, more used, I think they are used by all the big ones, uh, are diffusion models. And so yeah. stable diffusion is kind of a name that might uh, ring a bell for you. Um, stable diffusion is how DALI 2 has been kind of built out and all the others have been built out. And it's very different. The way diffusion model works is actually on the training data set, they're going to take images and they're going to add noise to those images. They're going to make them, you know, blurrier and blurrier and more distorted. And then they're going to try to reconstruct the image towards where it was. So, so they become master puzzle solvers, basically. And so on these kind of blurry images, recreating them back towards a good state, they become uh, increasingly better at understanding, you know, how a new pixel should be added on top of a kind of distorted image. And so the way they work, diffusion models kind of say it is they go pixel by pixel every time trying to find what is going to be the best next addition to this image to make it clear. Um, so the, that's that's how they work. They add clarity on top of noise. And uh, so if you if you wanted to have like a simple framework to think about the difference between GANs and a diffusion model, you could say that GANs are master trick artists. They want to create an image that's going to satisfy the discriminator. They're going to try to, let's say, trick the discriminator to think, yeah, this is a good thing. This is the thing that works. Whereas when you think about diffusion models, you can think about them as, you know, master puzzle solvers. They're going to create piece by piece this mosaic that's going to be an amazing image, kind of very aligned with what the text prompt was. Uh, so two different approach. When it comes to diffusion models, um, one kind of important development I would say over the last few years has been uh, in creating models that we call latent diffusion models. Mm -hmm. So basically what that does, and it's super useful, it's, it's going to start, you know, out of this image library and the model is going to be capable of recognizing undescribed patterns. So abstract ideas. So let's, let's make it clear. So if you had like an image of a face and now you have a million images of a face, even if it's not precise to the model that the face is composed of hairs, you know, of your skin that might, you know, tell what your age is, of eye colors, the model is going to be capable of creating those categories itself. And so when you generate an image out of a model built of uh, latent diffusion, you could do stuff like, hey, make this person look older, even though age was never described as a category into uh, the way the data was actually kind of provided to the model, the model will understand after a certain time that age can actually refer to the way your skin looks. Yeah, so they're, they're going to be able to draw these parallels and then you can weigh them up or down. Um, and most models now, they, they kind of work like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. And, and if you look at like all the big text-to-images model now, you basically have Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, DALI, and Picasso is coming up kind of quite soon. Um, and they're all a little bit different in how they're built out. Um, I would say the, more, the most secretive is definitely Midjourney when it comes to how it's actually built. 
Um, but if you if you look at others like Stable Diffusion, it's open source, which is great. So you can actually see everything and you can even build on top uh, of models for Stable Diffusion. So you can make it actually very good at specific categories, which is exactly what we do at Bloom. So we start off stable diffusion and then we train it on our own specific kind of data set to make it very good with product creation and creating fashion stuff, own good stuff. Um, yeah, so this is what we're doing kind of on top of, of stable diffusion. And even the way you do prompts for each of them is super different. So stable diffusion is not so good when it comes to very short prompts, whereas DALI is actually quite better. Uh, Midjourney can be quite sophisticated into how you actually do those prompts. And there's a new... Category is called, you know, uh, prompt engineers. Uh, and, you know, we've been kind of diving into that a little bit. I mean, it can get really, really complex when you want to build like super unique stuff. And I mean, all the artists we're going to discuss on this pod, many of them are, you know, proper prompt engineer. Like they do some crazy stuff. Um, so that's super exciting to check. And yeah, uh, I mean, they're all trained on different data sets. I'm super excited about uh, NVIDIA and Picasso when it's going to be released. You're going to be able to do text to image, text to 3D. Uh, they're already integrated into Adobe uh, Firefly Studio, which is amazing. They have tons of demos. Um, I think we're going to have like a segment on it specifically at some point because the tech is just so cool. Uh, and yeah, so the ways this model, these models can differ, it's the model itself in the back, but it's also the, the data sets, just on what has it been trained, how wide the data was. And this data set creates like the way the model is going to look. So stable diffusion tends to be realistic stuff, whereas DALI can be a bit more abstract. Um, Midjourney is great to doing like cartoony stuff. Um, so they all have almost like their DNA, I would say. That's interesting. I heard that there was one of them that was much more realistic. I thought it was Midjourney, Journey, but it seems like... No, Midjourney can be great. Yeah. Uh, I think Midjourney can be amazing when it comes to like the de level of detail. But okay, some people yeah. say that stable diffusion can be more consistent in the results mm. that you get. That's so interesting, the fact that it's all of them are so different. I yeah. mean, they've been trained on different data yeah, and they true. run different models. So uh, they do. And, and there's like platforms like Leonardo AI where... People can try the, their own like smaller models and, and then make them publicly available for others to try. I mean, I think at some point you're going to be an artist. You're going to be training model off of your art and you're going you're gonna to have your own models that you'll be able to sell or license. I mean, selling models of your art will become a business model. You won't be able to just sell designs. You'll be able to sell like entire models of what you do. Wait, that's so interesting. What do you think about that? I think that's crazy. I think it's definitely. I, I have no idea what's gonna, what's gonna happen, you know, in the in the future. But I do see uh, that happening, especially for artists that has been, you know, working on a, a big big portfolio for for some years, and that has like a, just hundreds of images laying around. Uh, I don't see why someone would it, wouldn't do it. Well, I, I, maybe maybe there's some some cases where you wouldn't want to share share that model. But in in a lot of cases, you know, if it's just like a art that you made on it you make on a daily basis and it's not actually like a contract base or or stuff like it i would be i would be super down to mm -hmm. to sell that i'm curious to have like a, your take on the different you know platforms that joe mentioned um have you played with the different you know tools yeah and i did prompt which... all of them i think like first impression is that it's not easy to get a, yeah. get great results you know you mm -hmm. cannot it's not true that you just prompt away and uh, you're going to get a, a great images you know like if you just come to to extract a, a good image like of course you can get like something decent in in a few minutes but uh, 
I think the real value comes when you actually start to learn how to to prompt each of them and they can get get it can get like super super deep like these prompt engineers like they they're coming up with like super creative techniques to to go from a prompt and to another prompt and then you know remixing only certain parts of the certain parts of the image and going from there like you're feeding it in another model and like they're really going far with this stuff and i i think it's only gonna get to get a like a you know like a, a new 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 skills just like painters know how to paint yeah and i'm curious to know like in your creative process do you feel like it's quite as satisfying like Ooh, to a get an end result yeah through these tools I, i'm not at the point yet where i like i feel maybe the same satisfaction yeah. like i'm used to you know just working in, in photoshop putting an image together and in a few hours, you know, like you, you do get lost in the process. And I, I haven't spent like a, let's say like two hours on, on a piece with AI yet. Like I, I'm not, I'm not that far yet. And I think maybe I'm going to feel the, the satisfaction. Like I, I've seen some, some people that, that knows what they're doing, like going super in depth in, in their prompts and actually working with an image for like two hours with yeah. primarily AI. And like they, they're coming up with like super, super precise piece, you know, like that, that are true to their original ideas. And, you know, I think that's a, maybe a big difference. Like if you come to the, the AI with, with an idea and you try to, to actually get that and you, you, you're able to, that's super satisfying and like uh, rewarding. But if you just like come to experiment, mm-hmm. you know, you just prompt away and you get random stuff, like it's, you're going to get cool images and they're going to be pretty, but I don't think you get like that creative satisfaction out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think you can get satisfaction out of both, um, out of both, really. Uh, I mean, it's true that you can um, come in with a clear idea and then getting to that idea can be incredibly satisfying, I think, for sure. But I think you can get immense satisfaction from using AI as a brainstorming partner and just driving that direction towards something you actually really like. It's a collaborative part, uh, you know, process. Sometimes, you know, on just like the brainstorming front, I'll brainstorm with ChatGPT. And I mean, this is almost like someone having a discussion with me and we land somewhere. So I didn't know where I wanted to go, but this process is actually a satisfying one. So I, I, I get what you mean. I just think you can have equal satisfaction out of both. But it really depends what you're looking for. You're right. Um, what about you, man? Oh, good question. Yeah, very good question. <laughs> good question, Joe. No, 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 good question because I was actually thinking about that while you were talking, but I was actually thinking more of my job as a recruiter okay. and like how I, com- I would compare it is that when I started being a recruiter at the time, I would write each email and like, like you know, email each candidate individually. And at some point, like templates became very <laughs> common, right? And so then I would have templates written for me and I would just like mass, you know, on LinkedIn, I would send mass um, email campaigns. And, you know, it's it's not because I don't write the email, but I don't find it satisfying. You know, I, I still enjoy the process and I just like, I take the tools to do what I do in a more efficient way. I'm not sure that applies to artistic um, processes because I do believe that a creative process is much more about like the struggles that you go through. And uh, we'll talk a bit more um, uh, about it later in in the podcast. But um, regarding music, I actually um, experimented a bit with like some um, AI music tools and I find it so, so, so interesting 
like the first thing that I realized is that it's crazy how easy it is to get like a result that actually sounds good, you know? Yeah. And, um, that is, that's going to make the, the, the process much, much simpler for sure. So, you know, you're able to actually, you know, to me, it's like, I have one thing that I, I really, I, I notice when I'm inspired and I listen to a beat, let's say, because, you know, I, I, I'm mostly a singer. So when I hear a beat that I find good, I'm going to start humming and singing a bit on the top and be like, oh, that, uh, that could, that could sound like something good, you know? And like, it took me literally 10 clicks to start humming, you know? Whoa. So yeah, it was super, super, super uh, fast. So I think it's, it's revolutionary. Um, I'll get into the details a bit later, but um, I, I definitely think it's, it's a revolutionary time that we're living. I am still like, I, I feel similar <laughs> than you felt. I, I do have like hesitation throughout the process because I think we struggle so much, you know, to create things and um, the struggle sometimes inspires. That's what I, I would say. Okay. So I think that's an amazing kind of um, entry points for discussing, you know, how do we think this whole kind of movement of generative AI uh, is changing um, the way art is made uh, for creators. I have a few points, perhaps I can start and, and then we can discuss, you know, about some of them. But the first one that we've kind of touched many times here is just this increases the speed at which you can create content. It's going to increase the quantity of content out there. And this has some implication. I, I think this has a million of implications, really. Uh, first one is, that is a good one. It's kind of it lowers the barriers to being a creator. Now, it means that Joe can actually create a very nice beat, yeah. uh, which, you know, is already a huge accomplishment. But I think it makes a lot of people capable of creating amazing content. So yeah. that's the first one. Implications of that is that you know, before creators had to find a metric on which to anchor, you know, the value of their work. So when you do a, an art piece, when you create, you know, a brand logo or whatever, often that metric that served as a foundation for what's the value of what you do used to be time. So how much time did you put into doing that? Uh, the time was kind of a an indicator of the struggle and just like a proof point. And you used to use that as kind of uh, the indicator of what you would charge a customer. But now this time is actually decreased by a lot. So does it mean that the value of the work related to that needs to decrease as well? That's an, an open question that I think is not going to be true for everyone, but will be true for most people, uh, most creators. Um, and so some implications of this entire, like there's going to be more people capable of being content creators. The cost of creating content is going down. Uh, there's going to be a lot more content out there. I think there's a few things coming mm -hmm. off of that. Uh, so the first one is, well, if there's uh, a lower cost to creating a unit of content, then you can, as an artist, go much deeper into what you create. So mm -hmm. when you used to create, like, let's say, a persona or just a character for a universe, now you can actually, in the same time, create a hundred characters and create like a mini story around that, a mini universe. So as a creator, you can go 
further along. You can go, you know, much further. The artistic project that we're going to be discussing at the end of this pod is exactly that. I mean, the work put into that without AI would have taken like at least a year, at least a year with like a full team. And I mean, it's a little bit secretive. We don't know how many people were involved into that project, but we know it's not older than a few months. Uh, and it's quite crazy, like the entire universe that has been built around it. Uh, so you can do much more. You can push it much further. So that's kind of the, I would say, one of the super exciting piece. You can take more risk as well. Mm-hmm. Because the cost in each piece is lower, you can actually you know, afford to take more risk to be a little bit more edgy in what you present. Uh, you won't be spending months of your life trying something that doesn't stick. So the the cost of taking creative risk is going down. So we might see a broader scope of things, which I think this is exciting when you think about the cost of content going down. And then the last piece I would say, I'll let you guys talk. I think that's an interesting point to make, but as there's been more content created, uh, digital content specific, you know, especially online over the last kind of decade, we've seen the need for content creators to develop a generalistic kind of a skill skill set become uh, very important. What I mean by that is it's not only enough or it could be, but it's less enough today uh, to create great content. You need to be a great marketer. uh, You need to be, you know, a great communicator. You need to be great at, you know, building business relationship with other folks in your industry. Um, You just need more. The content is becoming less and less enough for you to differentiate yourself as a creator, which I don't think is a positive outcome. I think a a real artist, what matters is the art. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could be very bad at building a community if you build very good art. To me, you're doing your job as an artist. But I do think... With so much content, it's hard exactly. to surface. Exactly, you're lost. You don't appear. The algorithm will never push you. You don't yeah. if you don't put enough content. Exactly. Right? So I think more and more people need to develop like a broader scope of skill set if they want to be seen because the sea of content is not going to shrink. It's going to transform itself in a tsunami over the next ten years. That's such a good point. What do you think, Phil? I think we need good good curation, both from from us artists, but also like other people that like to consume art on a daily basis. Maybe you know. It's kind of important what you like and what you share with, with others. Like, you know, when I'm scrolling through through IG or, you know, TikTok, like I, I see so much good content, but also like some, maybe some lower effort or l- lesser quality content. I think, you know, what I like and what I send to others does have a big impact. So I think like the, f- the further we go down, down this line where there's like a, a like an ever increasing amount of content every day, I think curation also needs to to, to ramp up. I'm not sure what you think. That, yeah, that's such a good point. But how do you make better curation? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it becomes like a responsibility to have like more curation pages. I don't know. From my like early Instagram days where I, when I was posting a lot of, of digital art, like there was these Instagram pages that, you know, like uh, gathered a, a lot of, uh, of traffic and, you know, they had their own hashtags. So if you use that hashtag in your, your, your art, more people would see it. And then like, if you actually posted a really great piece, they, they would actually feature it and post, post it on, on their page. And that's basically how you could Instagram account. That's, that was the way. So 
I don't know how these pages are doing. I think they're still active on Instagram. I'm just curious to see like, uh, you know, what's the need for, for these pages in the future. I think they, they actually become even more relevant. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm curious to know as a creative, um, do you find any relevance in like AI tools to for your own creative process? Well, that's the that's the tricky question. I think like uh, as a, a 3D artist, you know, in the, the 3D workflows, Actually, if I go back to when I first started 3D, what really like sold me to the idea, you know, I was actually studying anthropology at the time and I did a, a pivot on the same day. I said, I said uh, you know, screw it, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm moving away and I'm just, uh, I bought a computer that day. I, I actually got a, a credit line at the, at the bank and the same day I went to buy a, a powerful enough PC and I started learning 3D and then I got, <laughs> three months later, I got into a 3D school. After some time, Felix will need to tell the story of the SOS token. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. But yeah, the, the actually the original vision that really got me into 3D was the ability to to create entire worlds like without friction. You know, I just had that that dream of just sitting at a computer and just spinning up a world in, in an hour and then exploring that world and actually doing like a virtual production in that world. And I don't know, like I went to school for two years and I never got to the point where I could just like yeah, create these worlds and these high quality virtual environments and all that stuff. And I really think that with AI now, it's actually going to become possible for 3D artists to to spin up these worlds. And, you know, instead of uh, maybe you could imagine if people actually uh, for his everyday's project started to to create like a you know clips or short movies every day like how crazy would that be you know with with people quality of, of artworks but imagine that as a as like short clips it would be insane i mean uh just in the worlds that lighthouse indexes i mean we index like 35 virtual worlds from end to end now i think five to ten of them have started to create or include you know world building AI driven features. I mean, some very cool ones, but Blockade Labs is great on cyber has been doing some great works around that. Uh, I know Mona has been kind of working on it. Uh, so it's, it's coming across the board. Everyone is kind of developing these functionalities of spinning up like universe and yeah. being able to do it with like text prompting and just like generative AI based tech. So your dream is not too far away, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it's crazy because Two years ago, yeah. it could have seemed like we were 50 years away. I, I never thought it would be possible. Actually, like uh, I started learning a new program called uh, Uzini because it was so powerful and I could use like a procedural approach. And I thought that was going to, I thought that was it. And that was going to allow me to, to build these worlds that I was uh, dreaming about. And then, you know, the AI stuff started to, to come out and I, I told myself like, maybe it's not a, uh, Maybe it's going to be AI based, and that that's what that's what I need to be able to fulfill this uh, this vision. And right now, like a year later, I'm I'm persuaded that that's going to happen with like all the AI game development tools that that coming out. That is crazy. It's so interesting. I actually relate to to most of the things you guys said. I think as as a musician, um, the most like the relevance that I find the most is probably uh, the accessibility. Again, like uh, you know, normally like if you want to write a song, um, you got to find a beat first of all. So you got to scroll YouTube, find a, for example, if you were looking for a Kendrick a Kendrick Lamar type of beat you need to type that on YouTube, and then you have this list of all the different you know beat makers. Anyways. 
what was really interesting on the AI tool is that I just had to basically type. I didn't have quite as much, you know, possibility in the filtering for now because I think we're a very early stage, but still interesting to be able to find a bit. The machine creates a unique bit that nobody has in 10 seconds. <laughs> like it's just crazy. And I think the accessibility that it allows, I think the, the best platform I found was, um, what was the name again? It was a Soundful. Soundful AI, and for like less than $100 per year, you have an unlimited license. So just imagine what it means for lead wow. creators wow. that don't have the means to get the, you know, the, because, you know, if you buy a, a license, a beat a license, you know, it's like minimum $30, but each song, anyways, it's just opened so much possibility for creators. Well, for creators of music but exactly. for creators of those beats exactly that's what i, was I mean the say. impact is yeah. not the same it's uh i mean it's business model destruction right there for them they need to reinvent you know themselves totally at least a long tail totally totally so that, that was definitely a part of like my most improvement areas but again if you take the singer perspective you know uh, of somebody who's trying to write a song you know it does upend that you know that that possibility right You just inspired an idea. You Tell know what would be so sick? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be a rapper when I was a kid. Yeah. Okay. And to be frank, like this might sound very stupid, but because I was like a blonde white kid with glasses, yeah. I didn't feel like rapping was my place. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, only Slim Shady was kind of, Eminem was kind of... <laughs> allowed as Slim Shady back then was kind of allowed uh, you know to be like a white rapper back then you know and he obviously had a very different kind of upbringing than I was but still I always had like this in me like thinking that I would love to uh, to be a rapper someday yeah. I obviously love rap music um unfortunately you know I'm French speaking originally so it doesn't create such a great accent in English anyway but you know one thing I would do if I yeah. was a rapper I would train AI models on Kendrick Lamar, you know, yeah. Eminem, yeah. all these rappers. And I would do a tournament, a rap battle tournament with oh. me, rapping against each of them. And then I would make an AI, external AI, kind of rate who won. And I would do a tournament of all these rappers <laughs> as to who would win, like, this epic rap battle of all the rappers with crazy. me being kind of in the yeah. back. And I would stream yeah. that, live stream that, like, mm -hmm. those rap battles. I think this could have such potential for variety. And, yeah. you know, if you win that tournament against, you know, Kendrick Lamar in finale, then I think you're legitimate, legitimate <laughs> to ask Kendrick Lamar, the real one, for, like, a face-to-face -face challenge. <laughs> well... I do think this, but this is the kind of things, right, that you couldn't do back then, that you can do now. When I'm talking about like artists needing to be, you know, thinking outside of the box yeah, to find ways to be seen, this is something you could not do that you can do now. It yeah. doesn't push you to change the way you do art. I mean, it does change a lot the way you think about art because if you think about art as an express, like just an expression game, right, and the, the act of expressing your message. I don't know how much thinking of virality, you know, is like, I don't think when I create, I think that's about that's not the point. Know. No, right. that's not the point. Like, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think about the best songs I wrote. It was never about writing the best song. You know, it was always about like, I was going through something specific, you know, and 
the like, yeah, just the emotion, the way I was feeling allowed me to basically um, express the message. So the, the thing, what's happening, and we see that we see that already on social media, right? Like the people that have the most followers, the most likes, are not necessarily the most talented, and it's okay. But like I think with all what's you know everything that is happening right now. It's, it's becoming more and more a question, like an existential question about art, right? It's like, I feel like there is so much visibility on social media for people that don't necessarily are the most talented. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think you can fall in the trap like, pretty easily. It makes me think actually about my, my Instagram journey. You know, I, I, I posted an image, that I think it was in 2017. Yeah. It was like that airplane window with like the purple oh sky, the, the pink sky. Your are Yeah, that, that <laughs> so went viral on, on Instagram. And like after that, you know, I kind of learned that these types of images were doing well and they, they, they got reposted on like, a, I don't know, like 300 feature pages. And I just started like making other images like that. And yeah. after like, a, I don't know, two or three months, like uh, I got bored, you know, I was just uh, I was just making the, the images because I knew they were going to get like more likes. And I really didn't like that. So I stopped uh, using Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I think this is such a uh, a true thing. Like, so first of all, I mean, the way I kind of approached this entire thing and the way you responded just made me realize how much of a finance chat I am <laughs> and how much of a creator you are. I was like, bro, you can get viral. You need to break like Kendrick Lamar. And you're like, man, I just want to do a song that makes me feel something. Yeah, but that's good. It creates a contrast, you know? Yeah, it's a good it's contrast. It's a richer no, conversation. It's, it's, it's so true. It's and so great. You will probably be the one talking to Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> you will break. By the way, just let's make things clear. This will never happen. I will never. We'll make great content. Yeah. <laughs> That would be great content. Anyway, yeah. what I want to say is, uh, it's exactly that point. I mean, this has been a team in uh, like the rise of social media for such a long time, which is you just start using these platforms to create content that you like and that you care about. But with the numbers giving you that feedback again and again, so how many times has this thing been seen? How many likes has this thing got? You tend to take that external validation as an indicator of the quality of your work. And then you shape your work around that. Then, I mean, even, I don't think this ever stops. I think this increases over time. I think if you have like a huge podcast, things about like Lex Friedman's podcast. I mean, I've heard him, heard him many times say that he doesn't want to look too closely at the data of what he's doing just in terms of uh, viewership, because he doesn't want that to influence the choice of people he brings to his pod. And I think that's the recipe for success because it's authenticity. So he's staying authentic to what he does. He's not letting like the data uh, transform that too much. Uh, so there's this is this has been like a long topic of discussion. Even even on Instagram now, you can't see you know the numbers of like unless you kind of click. I think and only you can see it. Not others can kind of see. Yeah, it. I did this, notice that. I used to, like I posted a, my first uh, reel in years. Uh, Uh, two days ago, I think. And I don't see like the likes coming up and the, the followers. Like, I, I don't know. They, they seem hidden. I haven't figured that one out, but uh, it does feel a lot different now. Yeah, uh, it's, been, it's been something they've been kind of conscious about because there's been like, you know, there this huge report on Facebook, how people actually got, you know, less happy after using Facebook than they were after, before using it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you scroll for two hours, you come out of that process thinking, oh, I lost my time. Uh, so much. Yeah. And it's true because 
you do feel like that when you look at comments, when you look at pictures, as you move into videos, you feel less and less like that. So like the satisfaction score is kind of increasing with gaming people after gaming, they feel more energized and happier. So they're happy about their experience. So the more you're interacting, you know, the more immersive, interactive the experience is, the better. But anyway, they come out and they realize people were feeling less happy after using like those products. So one of the things they felt was kind of that constant pressure. You know, my life is not good enough versus oh what the others are kind of living and so they've been trying to do like marginal improvement to to solve that and you know if you, even if you look at instagram now yeah. the proportion of videos in your overall experience compared to what it was just like a year or two years ago yeah. is crazy you know they've been super inspired but what inspired I, i'm not sure if inspired is the world <laughs> but they freaked out because of tiktok, TikTok. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy how it shaped like the content of today you know yeah like right now like I think the only way to to make it as a content creator is to create real format with uh, with popular songs and to know it needs it needs to to have a hook super fast otherwise you you get swiped. I don't know. It's it's yeah. crazy how much that has an impact. Just the format. Maybe it's the actual cell phone. You know, for screen estate. But yeah, that's that's crazy to me. Yeah. Like if I would if let's say I I really like creating like square images. And I stick to that. I'm, You're I'm, dead. I'm, yeah, 100% not gonna make it. <laughs> and now, a quick note to thank our sponsor, Bloom, for making this show possible. Bloom is building a social commerce app that allows leading creators to design any products they want using a proprietary Gen AI powered tool. Designs that get the most traction on the app are sent to Prod in a highly vetted network of more than a thousand manufacturers working with brands like Nike, LVMH, Gucci, and Ralph Lauren. Bloom believes that creators, influencers, and artists should not merely be passive endorsers of other companies' products, but instead active collaborators in the product development process. Social commerce has lost its authenticity, and Bloom's mission is to bring it back by allowing creators to make real money along the way. Bloom is a venture capital-backed business supported by some of the world's best investors, having backed companies like Facebook, Etsy, Slack, and Dropbox. If you are a creator and have ideas of unique products you want to bring to life, reach out to the Bloom team on their Instagram page at letsbloom underscore art and help them build a future where tomorrow's largest brands are built by creators, not corporations. Okay, guys, I see time yeah. running. We can move to like the last part of the pod because I think it's like the most exciting and the nicest one. Uh, but to end this pod, we want to highlight an artist or a project that we think is amazing. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about AI today, so we will stay uh, under that team. So the project we want to discuss about today is mind-blowing, simply mind-blowing. So it's called The Visual Dome. Uh, go all check it out on Instagram. Uh, I think we're going to show you some pictures in the post-edited version of this talk. So you're going to see scrolling some images of this universe. It's crazy. When we were talking about AI enabling people to actually do more because of the wind efficiency. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the, I mean, lead example of what we mean by that. The creators of this project have not only created, I would say, an art style because there's a, an incredible level of coherence between every piece is created. They've created an entire universe. Uh, And what I mean by universe is a visual universe, a storyline around that. They've even created a world around that. And all of it is fizzled up in a way that just makes you wish 
you knew more or even better that you could influence like the storyline. I mean, you could just start off what the visual dome has done and you could create from that a hundred different stories, amazing stories. Yeah, all of I them. think they're doing it too. They're creating short stories with it. They are creating short stories. Mm -hmm. The way I've kind of read that uh, is that they are all kind of intertwined together. Uh, and so context for the audience, perhaps the visual dome, uh, you can check out their Instagram page. It's amazing. And then they have a website as well. Um, and so this is how they kind of describe it. Uh, the visual dome, a parallel world where time doesn't exist on the same plane as ours. Everything feels strangely familiar, but quite different. Technology has evolved to the same trajectory as our current world, but the dome seems to be oddly prevalent in an era reminiscent of our yesteryear. The dome world functions the same way as our earth does with laws, society, structure, evolution, invention, love, transportation, jobs, education, recreation, wildlife, fragile ecosystems, and modern nature. The dome is made up five districts. Bloodlines dictate residential status, although free travel is allowed throughout district three, four, and five. So, There's so much into that. There's a spatial element. There are different bloodlines. When you read that, those five stories, there's the notion of power, addiction, treason. I mean, it's so rich. Like you can feel the tension. You look at the image. Every image is amazing. It is so powerful. Also, the theme color is just crazy i feel like what's really interesting about um these these creators is that i feel you know very often we hear about this entire debate about ai replacing humans right this is what's going on everywhere but like when you look at their work you're like it's a way of celebrating humans because it's um um the the, the style and the aesthetic reminds a lot of like the middle of the 20th century like yeah. it feels like old movies yeah. right <laughs> so And it's so crazy. You, you see the celebration. You see how much it just yeah. enhanced enhanced the um, the. And I think uh, in this universe, tech uh, has a an old an older look. So the, the objects and the actual uh, the actual devices that they use as like a, a very advanced technologies are actually uh, they actually look like old tech and old devices from uh, from yeah. before. So one of the things this like this. Anyone that thinks if you use AI, the art is not yours. When you go and you check, I mean, there's many ways in which you could say that. So has the model been trained on, you know, licensed, uh, licensed data sets? Like this is one question, but I think this, the question where I'm going is if you create something with an AI, are you really the creator of this thing or is the AI kind of the creator? When I look at an entire universe like that, it is obvious to me that there's the fingerprint of an artist sure. behind that. Like there's a coherence, there's a style. I mean, there's, there's a continuity. You can, you know, that this has been done by one or a, a person or a team. <laughs> yeah. We actually don't know, but it's, it's easy to imagine that there's one, one person behind it. Well, this project. you know, there's like five stories posted like I think two at the end of each month for the last like two months and a half and there's initials in Fender. there I, I really want to know written by TR written by TR we have to figure it out and so they've all been written by TR 
so perhaps TR is alone, maybe TR is <laughs> That is so crazy. And that's a question like we, we don't have the answer because nowadays with all the, these new technologies, it could easily be one person, right? But at the same time, you know, it seems like the work of... We will figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we'll reach out there. <laughs> and at the end of each post, it's called written the classic way, which to me suggests that it's been written without AI. Like, yeah. By hand, by hand, perhaps. Is that the classic way? <laughs> well, but, but maybe the classic way is AI. What's the classic way? We don't know. It's it's not clear. Perhaps written with AI is the classic way. I don't know. We'll, we need to find this TR and ask him. <laughs> but anyhow, like the universe is crazy. What I was thinking, um, <clears throat> so there's been kind of a huge trend in... I would say the cinema industry yeah. where uh, Disney has been kind of buying, you know, old franchises. Uh, so Star Wars is kind of an obvious example. But even like the Harry Potter franchise, you can think about it, where they basically recreated an entire kind of storyline off of the universe. And one of the things that really came come off of that to me, which is kind of an, a, a very kind of understated thing about how you create movies, actually, is that a universe opens up the potential to create so much content. And when you do a saga like Harry Potter and you stop it, there's such an unused creative potential from that, that universe that dies because the story, it's infinite. I mean, the only, <laughs> the only universe that I feel has been exploited, exploited to its real maximum, like, I, I don't see anything more that could be created out of it. It's fast. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were going to say that. Like, I do agree. Fast and Furious might be the yeah. only franchise that has oh. really done everything it could with the substance <laughs> it had. But I mean, no, I think if they went all the way to Fast and Furious 20, I would, I would still watch all of them. <laughs> oh how many movies? Do do? Fast and Furious 10. Man, I, I, I don't know how. Yeah, like I went to watch like a little bit high the last uh, Fast and Furious 10. I mean, it looked like Fast and Furious 5, 6, <laughs> it, was, it was all about family, man. It was great. Okay, but now what I mean, let's go back like to the serious topic, is there's so much potential in a universe. And what I think a project like the Visual Dome is doing is creating that universe. And to me, there's, I swear, 50 Walt Disney, you know, Disney level movies that could be created off of that universe alone, which is basically 100 pictures five storyline the design of a world you know uh, stories around families and blog lines you, you can go crazy with that i mean yeah. you can have a marvel universe being created off of what these guys has created and the aesthetic once again is is just i mean these people they dress better than we do like yeah. <laughs> the look of those personas is actually crazy it looks amazing yeah, it's like a new art form, you know, it's like it's interesting that you compare it to the movie industry, because when I first saw that, I was like, it's so interesting that, you know, how the movies, you know, when they first started like recording movies, probably, you know, um, last century, um, they didn't have special effect. Right. And with time, special effect arrived. What we're going like what we're leaving in technology right now allows individuals or groups we don't know. Right. To create things like that, it, that are so big in a new art form that it feels like we just brown special we just brought special effect to like yeah simple creations yeah. right like yeah. I don't know if it makes sense but it's a, it's, it's a step change exactly it's a step change and in the, the art form is like it's a new art form like what they're doing yeah I was Instagram. gonna say like with it I don't think 
uh, I have no idea actually, but uh, do you think it would replace like Hollywood or does it exist as a separate uh, way to, to express uh, as an artist? Like, uh, let's say there is like the, the, the Hollywood movies, there's Marvel, there's Harry Potter, all these big franchises. And there's like this new breed of AI powered like universes that, that come out. Do you see them like evolving side to side? Or do you see actually Hollywood like crumbling down? And I don't think Hollywood is going anywhere. I think it's going to stay like a. So, um, I mean, there is like many parallels that needs to be drawn between this and the music industry for sure. Uh, okay. So I'm going to be, I'm going to try to structure some thoughts around that because I think it's a great question. Okay. When you think about music, uh, and obviously like distribution, digital distribution of music has completely reshaped the way the music industry is kind of set up. But the old structure of the music industry, which was basically huge record labels, um, basically acting as, you know, God is kind of deciding who would make it, who would not make it and, and capturing, you know, tons of profits doing that. This industry has been undercut by digital distribution, you know, to a point where it's, you know, I, w I wouldn't say dead, but it's a, a shadow of what it was, you know, back then. And so Hollywood has somewhat of a similar position where they have the budgets and they're kind of deciding what's making it and what's not making it. And, and if people want to uh, kind of internalize, you know, one thing, another thing people might not realize about like the movie industry, but the reason why you see like the same movie done like a hundred times in Hollywood. so thinking about like Marvel sequels or just Fast and Furious 10 is that no, but the cost of creating a movie is extremely expensive. Talking about tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, like going into these movies. And so there's like a huge risk with that when you can actually write and create a movie in the franchise of movies where you have, you know, basically a baseline of viewership, it de-risks a lot. And so because the stakes have been going, you know, so high up in terms of what's the cost of creating a, a you know, blockbuster in terms of content creation in the movie industry, the cost is so high that the risk that you take needs to be, you know, somewhat diminished. And so people are just not creating new content again and again. They're just reusing old ideas and then they're throwing like those bit buds. So, so the, the creativity breadth in movies has been, in my mind, kind of shrinking, especially when you look at like the higher up kind of uh, level of movies. Um, so this was just like a parenthesis. What I want to say about how this industry is going to evolve is to me, what happened with like the music industry is that anyone technically could create a song, a very high quality, like local recording, and then distribute that online. So you could create the content without the need of the record label. Record label were only a distribution and vector. When you think about Hollywood, the Hollywood industry, until now, and I think still today, but I'm not sure how true this will be in the next two, three years, you still need Hollywood and this whole kind of established industry to create great movies. So you can't create the content, high quality content without them, which is what you needed to be able to do in the music industry to start bypassing them on the distribution front. So I don't think Hollywood is going anywhere as long as you can't create Hollywood level type of content for budgets that are within you know, the means of the general public. And so there's many ways in which we could hope that people will be able to create very high quality movies. First one is AI and automation. And second one is like, you know, crowdsourcing the funding of projects and movies and just having this dream of, you know, community led financing of movies becoming kind of a norm. I think this 
could happen. I hope it happens, but it's a, it's a, it's another type of risk. Like it's, it's more of a cultural kind of decision that it is about like tech. So at this stage, but I do think when it's not, it's an if it's when, when a team of 10 will be able to create a movie for 5 million or less, you know, Hollywood type level quality of movie. I think Hollywood is in big trouble. I think Hollywood could be bypassed because then they become a distribution engine. They don't become a production engine and people can create without them. Damn. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. mic. That's that's the future of creation. I mean, visual dome. Visual dome. Why would you need Hollywood if you can distribute that on, (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, online, create a very high quality movie off of it. Yeah. Would you say that's the, like the biggest advantage of like this, uh, this model, like not having the, the pressure or the big budgets, you know, it's just like, it, maybe it's a, it's one person or, or it's a team of like five or 10, but since there is not that, that pressure to, to create like a masterpiece or just to, to keep creating, like if, you know, they don't need to unlock a new budget to create a new, a new short story or a short film, they, they just do it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the last five years have all been about like concentration of power in the movie industry because the cost of creating a movie has been growing so much that it's been the number of people being able to compete at that level of production quality has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so you had like winners take all, take all type of effect in the movie industry where there's basically six, seven studios being capable of doing like $300 million movies without knowing what's going to be kind of the, you know, uh, economic downfall from it. And, and when the cost of a movie goes to 500 million, uh, then there's going to be five of them. And then it's going to be like only three of them. But this is what we've been saying. Look at like, uh, <laughs> you know, the movies you've seen at the theater over the last two years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Fast and Furious 9, Fast and Furious 8. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's the same thing. It's Marvel. It's uh, yeah. because the stakes are just so high. But now with AI, the yeah. cost is going down. It's going down very fast, very, very fast. This has a democratizing effect on who can create content. It's interesting. Interesting. I still believe that there is like the symbolic uh, impact of Hollywood, for example. Like they have all the PR and like... Think about the music industry. Think about record label. I mean, they're still alive. Many of them are still alive. Like uh, They keep kind of like, obviously, that there is not an exponential growth (laughs) in these companies, but they keep like the symbolic power. Don't you think so? Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I think, I don't think they're dying. I think they're going to shrink a lot and they're going to shrink for a long time. No, no, I agree on this. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe we could uh, ask the final question, you guys. You yes. This? Yes. We really need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So open question. Um, so we're obviously a generation that grew up with the internet and uh, um, would be curious to have your take on how do you think um, the next generation of artists will grow up with um, Gen Gen AI? So what do you think is going to be? Yeah. Phil, maybe I, w- I would love to have your take on this. <laughs> I think it's hard to imagine to a point where it's impossible to imagine. Like maybe in in 20 years, you know, like I don't see, I haven't, I I can't imagine where the ceiling is in terms of like what one person can achieve. And like, if I would be growing up in, in like a fully accomplished AI powered world, I don't know. I think in our standards today, it would be like a superhuman types of uh, in terms of output and in terms of like just intelligence I think for especially for learning for, for education 
it's, I think it's impossible to tell, but I do think that if it goes well and it, it actually works as well as we think it's going to work, okay, people are going to get very smart and, and super creative and super accomplished as well. Wow, love that. Joe? So I think, uh, you know, I'm not an artist, maybe martial artist, but I'm not <laughs> a musician or... And, and But I always loved music and the reason why I'm, I haven't like pushed into music or anything like that is because I was just not talented at, you know, piano or guitar or I don't have a nice voice to sing, but I, I do love music. And if I grew up in a world where I basically had access to those tools, then maybe I would have done, you know, some form of, of music. I, I do think the next generation... Uh, will be able to express its creativity uh, starting from the ideas they have and, and their technical capability to execute those ideas uh, won't be a barrier as much as it was for our generation. Uh, and so what you can dream, what you can imagine is actually going to be such a driving force behind what you can achieve as a creator. So I think the next generation, there's going to be a bigger proportion of people that are going to be creator of a specific form of content. I think that's great for human creativity. Uh, I think if I was born in the AI generation, I might, you know, most likely uh, would have tried to create more art than I did. Uh, so that's one of the conclusions I have. I think this next generation I think they're going to have some challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I totally agree with you guys. I see that. How I see that is that I look at the music industry this past, I don't know, 60 years and how much you no know, tech actually changed the game, right? Like, um, I don't know, when I started, first started making music, it was not that accessible, like to be able to build a, a beat with a keyboard or record yourself at home and stuff. We didn't have um, computers powerful enough. So anyways... I see the way it changed the game and it made like so many artists able to express their message, right? Does it mean that the quality went up? Not. I think there are a lot of artists nowadays. Um, not all of them are talented and I wouldn't say that the most famous are the most talented. So I think it's a very complex thing. The accessibility um, of art is going to, you know, for, for everyone, it's going to get bigger, but the competition is going to get bigger too. So I think it's uh, it's... It's a cool future that we have in front of us. I'm pretty sure it's, the cool things are going to happen, but I totally agree on um, the fact that there are other challenges, ethical challenges that too that we should definitely think about. This was such a fun pod. Uh, I really <sighs> liked it. I, I mean, we could have gone for like two yeah, hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least another hour. Yeah, at least another hour. I'm, I'm already late for a call, oh. like 10 minutes late with our lawyers. It's fine. Uh, I really liked it. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much. I'm super excited for the next one. Yeah. Present like the next artist. Yeah. Present a new tech. And the next like, one after that. Great. Yeah. And the next one after that. So thanks for everyone. The you know first listeners of this pod. Uh, there's going to be a lot more coming up. Super excited about the next ones. Thanks everyone for setting this up. And I'm excited for the next one. Thank you. Thank very you much. everyone. Ciao. Bye bye.